I didn't ask for a shrink. That must have been somebody else. Also, that pudding isn't mine. Also, I'm wearing the suit today because I had a very important meeting this morning, and I don't have a crying problem. This is episode 13 of They're All Going to Laugh at Him. I'm Alex Sprague. And I'm Jess Geyer. And today, we watched Punch Drunk Love, a they-call-it-romantic-comedy. I'm not really sure if that's what it is. I mean, it's a comedy in the sense that the two people get together at the end. So if we're talking comedy in the Shakespearean sense, mm. if we're talking comedy in the Catcher in the Rye sense. Talking it in the sense where it's not that funny. There were some funny moments. Yeah, I, I do think there is funny moments in this. Um, it's not, I, think, I don't think it's traditionally funny, but when you look at it from the angle that humor comes from irony and humor comes from tension um i don't actually think there's a lot of tragedy in this book in this movie um there isn't in the movie it is hinted to highly i believe that's fair yes there is a lot of tragedy hinted too and there's a lot of tragic elements Mm -hmm. um it could have gone i i was worried the whole time because it did feel tense yes and it's supposed to yeah it reminded me so much of Uncut Gems. Yes. With the music and, and the filming style, but we'll talk about the music and filming style, I think, mm-hmm. later. Alex, why don't you tell us about this movie first? Okay. Uh, this 2002, whatever genre it is, is a one-plus star Sandlayer film. I've added in a plus due to the research I've done. It stars Adam Sandler. But it is not produced by him, and it was not written by him. But I'll get to the plus later. Um, okay. Also, do you want to take a guess on uh, the Rotten Tomatoes score of this movie? I think that it was absolutely lauded by critics. I think that it has at least an 80% critic rating, but I think it has a lower audience rating. I think it probably has like a 70% audience rating. Um, You're close, but kind of correct. 79% critic rating, 77% audience. That was, oh, that was okay. really close. Um, yeah. There's a few really stupid takes on, like, why they didn't like this movie. Um, and also, it is ripe with people saying, like, um, the director, Paul Thomas Anderson, did amazingly to make Adam Sandler act in a way that wasn't childish and moronic. And, like, they, there's all that kind of stuff. Um, they're really just, they actually, they talk a lot of shit about Adam Sandler in the, in the Absolutely not reviews. giving him, absolutely not giving him any kind of credit. Yeah. I said before that I think he's a pretty good actor. He's not the best actor. No. But this, I, this movie certainly shows his acting chops. And and I think this movie's, uh, one of the side characters in it is who I think of as one of the best actors, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he holds his own to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there's a, a good quote here of nothing makes much sense, and the Watson character would have run a mile from Sandler, who performs like Jerry Lewis at his least endearing. I'm like, hey, guess who didn't get the movie? Um, whoever works for The Guardian. I should probably be writing film reviews for The Guardian, because that guy is worse at understanding things than me. <laughs> um, but anyway. Yeah, I, I thought that this film was really well done. 
I realize that we never said what this podcast is about. Oh, uh, we are watching all 60 Adam Sandler and Adam Sandler adjacent movies in a row every single day. Now, I did get a question. Why didn't we watch, um, what is it called? Shakes the Clown, I think it's Shakes called. the Clown. Yes, Shakes the Clown. Why didn't we watch Shakes the Clown? Well, we're not watching movies that Adam Sandler just has a bit part in. We're only watching movies that he has a significant part in, or that his production company produced, or that he had a hand in writing. Yeah. Um, if you look at, like, the IMBD for Shakes the Clown, he's, like, the 20th person in the film um, by cast, and he's, he's Dink the Clown, but there is at least 15 other clowns listed before him. That movie started Bobcat Goldthwaite. I can't say his name. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like Robin Williams and a bunch of other pretty big stars at the time in 1991. Um, he he was just in it. I mean, that's yeah. the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. It's without a doubt he didn't have much to say about the direction that movie went. Or Yeah, but, you know, maybe it. we'll, we'll uh, have a Patreon episode for it or something if we decide to do something yeah. like that. But- so the thing I think everyone wants to know is how many times did I laugh? How many times did I cry during this movie? Like a list. I only laughed five times. Not many. Yeah. I was going to say, like, there were very few times that I heard you laugh. Mm. Did you tear up at all? I teared up twice, giving it two half points, but not one point. Where did you tear up? Um, uh, I, I will, I'll point them out when we're doing the recap. Okay. But yeah, so, I, so I'm assuming no tear ups from you, huh? No, I didn't find it sad at all. Yeah, well, I think, and I'm gonna go into this a lot later. Specifically, this is a movie that someone like me would find emotionally moving. Yeah, it's a movie, definitely in my opinion, for men. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. No. It doesn't, it's not a movie that even relies on, like, compared to Deuce Bigelow, which is, Mm -hmm. I think, definitely a movie for men, um, or The Animal, which is also a movie for men. It doesn't rely on, like, the the male gaze. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in the movie that is misogynistic at all. Um, I mean, there's a little bit, but not anything, like, that you might normally think to find in an early 2000s movie. I don't think... What I mean by it... I mean, it's a movie designed for men because it deals with this very male issue of, you know, men, like, male mental health. Mm-hmm. I, I think when, when you mentioned that it uses misogyny, I think part of it is the fact that if a movie doesn't uh, touch on any ism, basically, it's probably mm-hmm. not that interesting a movie. You can have misogyny in your film without glorifying it. And that's something this film does. Yes, it, it doesn't glorify that yeah. at all. Okay, let's uh, quickly recap the film so people can get on our level if they haven't seen it. Uh, and really, I'm going to stop right now. And if you haven't seen this movie, go out and watch it before you listen to this. Because it's a really good movie. Like, just objectively, I think, a good movie. Yeah. I'd agree. And, uh, and I'm glad that I didn't know anything going into it. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually like double down and say like, go into it without knowing anything. Um, I think I think that's yeah. probably the best way to do it. Just like, mm-hmm. don't expect a specific movie. 
Yeah, this was not the movie I was expecting, mm-hmm. for sure. Barry Egan, played by Adam Sandler, sells novelty toilet plungers. He sees a harmonium dropped off at the side of the, the road, like following a pretty intense car crash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then a woman ends up leaving her car for the garage next door to fix, asking Barry to look after it for her, and Barry brings the harmonium inside. Now, that sounds like a really weird beginning to a movie. This takes the span of like 10 or so minutes. There's a lot of detail going on here, but I'm just going to cover the basics mm-hmm. that are important. Uh, throughout the beginning of the movie, Barry gets several phone calls and visits from his seven sisters, and they're all asking him to confirm that he's going to a party. They never say what party. Uh, and he says yes, but he also waffles a little bit on that, especially when his sister Rhonda suggests that She's inviting a woman for him to meet. At the party, his sisters rag him about the time they called him gay boy, and he threw a hammer through the sliding glass door. Uh, And after continual, like, talking about this and, like, telling him that his suit, that his blue suit that he's wearing looks weird, uh, he kicks the sliding glass door at the actual party. Um... Very suddenly, very uh, sudden outburst of rage. Mm. He ends up confiding in his brother-in-law that he's depressed and needs to talk to a psychiatrist, but asks him not to tell his sisters that he's doing this. At the grocery store, Barry learns about the frequent flyer miles being offered for Healthy Choice brands and figures out that the pudding cups will allow him to accumulate 1 million miles for only $3,000, which is a really good deal. I want 25 cents a pudding cup. That is based on a true story. A college student did that. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. You got 1.25 million uh, air miles for $2,700, and then they cut the program. Hmm. Well, uh, he ends up loading up on pudding, and he brings it Mm. to his work. At home, he calls a phone sex line and gives the woman on the other end his credit card and social security number. Never do that. Yeah, don't do that. Ever. Not, not the uh, thing about a, calling a phone sex line. If that's your thing, go ahead. Just don't give people your social security number. Yeah, definitely not. Um, he has a conversation with her that she keeps trying to bring back to sex, uh, but he delays for a very uh, for a pretty long time. This very awkward phone call. He's pacing all around his house, very unsure of himself. But in the end, he does sit down and starts jacking off. I think, right? It, you're unsure. It's yeah, it's unclear what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next morning, Georgia, the Phone sex line operator. Or phone sex operator. Actress. Yeah. Uh, calls him again and asks for $750, which he denies her. Mm-hmm. At work, his sister Rhonda vis- visits him again, this time with Lena. Who plays Lena? Lena is played by Emily Watson. Emily Watson, that's right. Um, she visits with Lena, and Lena is the woman who dropped off the car earlier. And apparently this is the woman that Rhonda had invited to the party, but she didn't end up showing up. Uh, There's a lot of commotion happening in the background of this scene. Uh, A lot of questions being asked and not being answered. Uh, But during this, Georgia calls his work phone and threatens him. Multiple times. For that money. Multiple times. And he keeps hanging up on her. Rhonda also says in front of Lena that her husband told her about Barry asking about a psychologist. And after Rhonda leaves, Lena comes back to talk to Barry some more, and she mentions that she's going to Hawaii soon, and he says he is too for work, but not really. 
Uh, and they agree to go on a date. Yeah, Mary Lynn Ratchscub is the one you're thinking of. That's Emily. Or Elizabeth, sorry. Oh, well, you'll have to forgive me because there are seven of them. Yeah. Um, and they are not very distinct. I, I know that actress only because she plays Gail the Snail in uh, It's Always Sunny. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, we see Georgia from Utah and Philip Seymour Hoffman assemble four blonde brothers to go deal with Barry. Uh, the date with Lena goes all right, except for a hiccup where he smashes up the restaurant bathroom and is kicked out after she mentions his sisters telling her the story about the window. Not that story. He- uh, the story up from his childhood about him throwing a hammer through a window. Yes, that one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's hard because now there are two smashing sliding door stories. Yes. Um, he never tells her that that's what he did, not in the scene at least. Um, mm-hmm. And he gets kicked out of the restaurant, but they leave together. After an awkward goodbye, Lena calls Barry on the apartment phone, like downstairs, uh, while she's still upstairs, and says that she wanted to kiss him. So he runs back upstairs and they do kiss. Uh, Then Barry is kidnapped by the four blonde brothers and is forced to withdraw $500 from the ATM to appease them. He gets punched and then he runs away from them, terrified for his life. (laughs) He decides that he will need more pudding so he can go to Hawaii. Uh, He makes a plan, but he tells his co-worker Lance, who's played by Luis Guzman, not to tell his sisters. Uh, when he learns that it'll take six to eight weeks to process the pudding to get his miles, he decides to go anyway, regardless. He meets up with Lena in Hawaii, and it turns out to be very pleasant. Like, nothing really goes wrong here. Uh, he does have to threaten his sister on the phone to tell him where uh, where Lena is staying. Mm-hmm. But he gets the hotel name, and they meet up, and it's a very cute scene. Um, which I want to talk about later, so please remind me. Yes. Uh, and they meet up, and they, they spend the night together. They have a a, a nice date. Uh, uh, the sister ends up calling Lena and asking about um, Barry, and she does not say that he came to visit her, keeping, you know, his privacy, which seems like he's been wanting. Yes. Uh, and they go home together as well. But on the way home, the truck of the four brothers smashes into their car as they're pulling into the garage. They're both okay, but Lena's head is bleeding. And Barry gets out, beats up the brothers, and smashes the windows with their crowbar, and they drive away. Uh, he hits two of them with a tire iron in a very violent scene. It's not just... Yeah, a tire iron, he, not a crowbar. He punches one in the face, and they go down, and then he hits the next two with a tire iron, and then smashes up their car. Yeah, I think the tire iron had actually belonged to one of them. Yes. Because he gives it back to them in the end. The first one had it when he punched it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Lena has to go to the hospital. Uh, She probably has, like, a concussion or something. Yeah, if you're bleeding from the head, it's pretty bad. Yeah, and she's kind of, like, she doesn't make a lot of sense when she's talking, but she also makes just as much sense as she does in the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. Again, something we'll go into. Um... He ends up leaving her there at the hospital to go to Utah to confront Philip Seymour Hoffman and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Ashley Clark. She's credited as Sex Line's sister. Oh, there you go. Interesting. Um, 
he confronts them and he ends up cowing Philip Seymour Hoffman and makes him say that's that. And then he leaves and goes home. Um, he goes to find Lena at her apartment again to apologize for leaving her at the hospital. And they end up making up. Well, he makes it up to her. And the movie ends with her visiting Barry at work and Barry playing the harmonium. And the end, it he says the line, so here we go. And that's it. And I think from that point of view, this movie's a little seemingly bad. Because <laughs> this movie relies so much on the soundtrack, the cinematography, and the artistry of filmmaking to portray what they're doing. So the... The, the plot put ABC doesn't work super well, but there is not a better like plot we've seen Adam Sandler in than this so far. No, the dialogue also makes it. Oh, yeah. The, the dialogue, this is going to seem like such a weird comparison. It's very much like The Room huh. in that there's a lot of repetition of lines. A lot of lines are stated in a way to make them seem important, even if they're about innocuous things. Yes. There there are a lot of non sequiturs. Uh, uh, and I think that's because it's really, it reminds me a lot. It's not quite theater of the absurd, but it reminds me a lot of theater of the absurd, where theater of the absurd is a style where they're critiquing theater itself Mm -hmm. this is not i don't think critiquing movies i think it is is sincerely trying to be a movie uh i think you're right and wrong there for something i want to talk about later but i think you're right because this movie is also coming from the point of view of barry who is seeing things in this manner he he sees non-sequiturs as important sometimes and he's repeating things and he's not great at talking because Barry, in my opinion, is someone who is dealing with a social anxiety disorder or oh, yeah. something more. Um, Maybe autism. Yes. Yeah. It's, it, it's unclear. Um, and it will be unclear forever because he's made fun of when seeking help and trying to figure out what people are like. There's a yeah. really good line where someone asks if he's all right. And he says, I don't really know. I don't know how people are supposed to be. Yeah. And that's... And I feel that. I understand that so much mm-hmm. as someone who struggled with mental health. It's really hard to imagine what other, what quote unquote normal people are like when you're going through stuff in your own brain. And I really did see it and a lot of times. I saw myself in Barry in the way that everything seemed so overwhelming and the way that like questions were just so much and even just normal communication felt like... It was everything, you know? Yeah, and uh, in the movie when it's making all this kind of racket music is kind of how I would call it. There's It's purposefully discordant music. Yes. Um, I just didn't trust myself to say discordant um, <laughs> because I normally mix up my words. But during this, like a lot of people don't like this movie due to the fact that the soundtrack is, is kind of hurts you. Um, and personally, I've been told that all music I like involves random noises in it, which is... So I like the music in this. I think it works really well, and it really helps put forth this idea of anxiety and chaos. And Yeah, it's, it's meant to make you feel 
like there's a lot going on. There are a couple times where the music stops. And when that music stops, even if you don't recognize that it's happening, it hits you like this relief. And one of the key scenes where that music stops is when Barry is in the hotel with Lena. Mm -hmm. And she's on the phone. And he's just sitting in bed and smiling at her while she lies to his sister. Yes. Um, And it's just peaceful because there's no background noise or music at all. And throughout the movie, he will go to the harmonium and touch it and play a note or two. And it will ease the stress of the music around it. Yeah. And, I mean, maybe the harmonium is supposed to literally be harmony. But in general, I don't know. It could just be music or the creative process. There's a lot of things mm-hmm. that could be. It doesn't really matter. But it shows that this guy is, like, trying really hard to keep a handle on stuff. He is a s- small business owner that seems to be doing okay. He has, like, six people who work for him. Yeah, um, but you have to think about the business itself. I mentioned that he sells novelty toilet plungers. Yeah. He- no one wants a novelty toilet plunger. What, what that is representative of is the idea of turning something, trying to make something that no one wants to do, that is kind of like, it's just so mundane and even gross, and trying to turn it into something fun. And that's kind of what work is in general for someone who has anxiety. Well, I, I, I want to talk more about that now, because I think there's more to it than that. There's, okay. So I want to start talking about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. He, okay. he made this movie called Magnolia. He won a ton of awards. And after he won all those awards, he was at a press conference and they asked him, what are you going to make next? And he said, I'm going to make a 90 minute, he's known for making long movies, a 90 minute Happy Madison produ- type movie starring Adam Sandler. And everyone there laughed and he left the stage. Huh. He, so he went and made a 90 minute Happy Madison production starring Adam Sandler that people loved. And it's this movie. He wanted to make a movie in the vein of Adam Sandler. Um, Some of his notable stuff, he made Boogie Nights like Scorsese. And he made uh, There Will Be Blood like Kubrick makes movies. He he kind of likes getting into other people's, I don't want to say skin. He does his own thing, 100%. But he is doing riffs on someone else's stuff a lot that's so interesting and you know i i learned i'm in a book club where we're reading infinite jest and i learned that paul thomas anderson actually studied under david foster wallace the writer of infinite jest Hmm. and said that it that wallace was his favorite english teacher and the reason why i even looked that up i was like you know what i just watched punch drunk love last night and this is reminding me so much of the conversation that we're having right now. So I had to look it up and I went down like a little David Foster Wallace, Punch Drunk Love, top Paul Thomas Anderson rabbit hole. But interesting. Uh, I want to bring it back to what you were saying before. The making of the, the plunger, the, the fun plungers. Mm-hmm. That's what people, he's making what people talk about when they say what Adam Sandler makes. He makes these, you know, crude movies that there's, I mean, there's a reason for it, but it, it's bottom of the barrel. It's it's like filth movies, basically. Hmm. It makes poop jokes. What he's saying isn't important to other people. And I think that is wrong at this point. And I think uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has done a very good job of making a Adam Sandler movie, like an, an, but arts, arty, 
basically. Yeah, um, I mean, it has all of the key features. It has this guy with social anxiety. Who's angry at times and also kind of, ha- he even has some issues with speaking, which is uh-huh. very common in Adam Sandler roles of the, the gibberish stuff. He meets a woman who, by all rights, should not actually like him. But does, and then sticks with him, and kind of... And they get together in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, basically, by putting us into the mindset of this... uh, I I want, like, a a catch-all term for characters Adam Sandler plays, and it should be, what is it, uh, Y characters? Very, re, re characters? Any any name that ends with the R-Y or Y sound? No, it's not always R-Y, but it's I-E, usually, or... Like the E characters, the e characters. Dim- like diminutively named. Yes, um, on purpose, I think. Um, and then his uh, love interest is an LL in this instead of a VB. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson has hit on what what we're talking about when we're talking about the Water Boy or Happy Madison and, mm-hmm. or Happy Gilmore and all these characters is something a lot of people have talked about. Is this movie is an allegory for Superman, which I don't think is exactly right. <laughs> I don't think it's right at all, honestly. Um, well, I will say he wears Superman's colors. He um, ha- there's, there's one scene where he flies um, like Superman. He puts his arms out and jumps off something flying. This, this is a purposeful allusion to Superman, I think. And he demonstrates super strength, quote unquote, by beating people up and by hitting a unbreakable plunger and breaking it. His favorite DJ is DJ Justice. He picks healthy choice foods. Um, it's just kind of like the Superman thing. But people aren't looking at it correctly because they're like, yeah, it's about Superman. But it's not. What it's about is the type of character Superman is because it's also about Popeye. Everyone knows <laughs> who Popeye is. He was the Superman before Superman made in like the 19-teens. He eats healthy food and becomes strong in order to help olive oil another alliterative person and they show it's about popeye because you know that song they play uh the he needs me song mm-hmm. was written for the popeye movie starring robin oh. williams i was wondering about that mm-hmm. song because i found that song very annoying so the reason they're talking about these characters isn't because it's clever to make a movie where the guy might secretly be superman or maybe secretly popeye that's kind of a lame way to look at it. The reason they're talking about it like this is because these characters are representative of what people wanted to be and what they thought were good values. Um, I know we want to talk a lot about masculinity in this one. And masculinity in the 50s could be represented by, look at what Superman does. He, he stands up for the strong. He only fights when they hurt the innocent woman. Before then, he was willing to talk it out, and he always was willing to talk it out. Popeye was always willing to fight for the woman he loved or something. You know, he takes some spinach. <laughs> he fights uh, Castor, I think his name was. And, oh, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, the thing I see a lot in this is it's talking about the evolution of what masculinity means to most people. And in you know the 90s, early 2000s, masculinity is a lot about making crude jokes and being being a happy Gilmore type sometimes. You know, you don't really care mm. what happens around you. You don't listen to people. It's this weird perversion of masculinity 
that we kind of poke fun of at, but there is a lot of people we know who are exactly like that. And I think they're purposely taking this strongman motif and putting it up against someone who doesn't want to fight anyone. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, also, it kind of works if he's trying to make an Adam Sandler movie by including a bunch of references to things. Because <laughs> that's what Adam Sandler does, too. Yeah, but he makes all the references on purpose. He watches Popeye in this movie. That's what's on TV when he's at his house. Oh. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. I didn't know it was Popeye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it just this this whole masculinity idea has evolved a lot. And I think it's very specific to show... I mean, he 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 ends up not winning because he's the strongest. Um, but it is strange that this threat of violence is what takes him to win. Um, and there's a very weird scene where he he goes to fill uh, Seymour Hoffman's place of work, threatens him, and he says, "If you say that's that, we're done." Philip Seymour Hoffman says, "That's that," and then while Barry's walking out, he says, "You're a fucking purr," and Adam Sandler turns around, ready to fight him. And he's like, "I fucking warned you." And then Philip Seymour Hoffman says, that's that. And Barry turns back around and leaves because he's going to play by the rules that he set up because that's like what they're, that's what the honorable person would do. Um, it shows a lot that kind of him being honorable screws him. And this idea of how masculinity is supposed to work is constantly not great for him, mm-hmm. which leads to a lot of his issues. Um yeah, I mean, for me, for for the masculinity angle, it really plays into how men are taught by society that one of the only emotions that they can ever sh- that they can ever express is anger and rage, and we see that twice in the movie. Well, we see it a couple times in the movie, but we see it twice in the in the first act where he smashes the windows at the party and he beats up the bathroom at the restaurant. Instead of being able to express his emotions, when he does cry, he says that he has a crying problem. Yeah. But it makes sense that he's crying. I mean, he's getting ragged on by his sisters. He's super overwhelmed. They have, they, they're putting a lot of pressure on him. I mean, I wouldn't want them to talk about, I mean, they're calling him gay boy like it's just a joke. That's not mm-hmm. cool to do to somebody making fun of his suit that he's obviously very, like, proud of. Yeah. You know, he wears it the entire movie. And he, this whole time, the only the only time that he can actually, I mean, he's, he's keeping all of his emotions in until he explodes with them outward in a fit of rage, which I think is really common for men, especially mm-hmm. men who deal with mental illness. Men who deal with mental illness tend to express their, like, depression via anger more often than women do. It's also a symptom in women, but it's mo- most often expressed with with rage for men as opposed to women. Yeah. Um, and he's also, when he has a discussion, the only person he actually really has a discussion with is a sex worker. And it's like having this conversation with somebody, it has to be about sex. In this case, that's like what the societal standard is. But then when he does have this conversation about sex, he's labeled a pervert. There are all these conflicting conflicting expectations for him. And that's very frustrating for, for men. I can definitely see why that would be, you know, harmful to mental health. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I want to talk more about how the sisters treat him. It's, it is something that like prickles me a lot. Cause I remember, mm. um, a lot as, especially when I was younger, like before, I guess I was an adult, um, having this situation where there's people all around you kind of nipping at you on purpose in order to get a reaction. They're, they're calling you names. They're bringing stuff up in the past. They're trying to embarrass you. Um, and then when a reaction happens, they act like you were out of line. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially for like young men, this is constantly happening to the point of violence. And I, I might have a bad view on this where I think that, Violence is perfectly acceptable when it comes to situations like this, um, where if you're reasonable violence, like, you know, one of the best ways to handle a bully is to just punch them in the face because then they stop bullying you. I, though, am saying that from the point of view of like a 6'3 guy who has successfully punched several people in the face. But I also remember being like 10 years old, I had hair down to my uh, shoulders and I was constantly made fun of for it. Even though it was something I was secretly proud of, I just couldn't really talk about that in a way that made sense to my peers, nor would they have cared back then. Probably because they were picking on me because I was poor, but that was the only thing they could really pick on me because I was normally, you know, doing well in school. Mm -hmm. And I would lash out in anger all the time. Well, you're for, for men too, like I said, if the only emotionally the only socially acceptable emotion is anger i mean let's bring it to the movie if adam sandler cried in front of his sisters he'd probably be looked at like why are you so depressed like what's wrong and or or you're so weak Mm -hmm. one of those either coddling or like uh, making fun of him for being weak and feminine yeah or he could lash out in anger in which case he'd be labeled crazy or irrational or violent but for me, I mean, I know which one I would prefer. Would I prefer to have the powerful outburst or the weak outburst? I know what would be more, you know, like make me feel better. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think is is huge in um, basically the past of every guy I know who has struggled at least somewhat with mental health or even with fitting in um, because mm-hmm. very Obviously, Barry does not fit in with his surroundings. No. He has trouble with well, it all. Well, sometimes, sometimes he fits in too well. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's also the title of the movie kind of comes into this too. Um, being punched drunk. Um, I think it kind of has a dual meaning. But the meaning I'm mostly familiar with is when you get hit, there's a fuzziness to the world for a little bit. You can kind of lose clarity and are unable to understand the things going on around you after being hit. Um, so punch drunk love means like, you know, you're hit by love in a manner that you're unclear with the your surroundings is how I see it. Or it could be punch drunk as in, you know, you're getting violent for no good reason. Yeah. Yeah. I can I can see both interpretations there. I wanna talk about the wedding singer really quick mm-hmm. because there was something that I rem- I realized that I had forgotten to mention during our recording of The Wedding Singer, when Robbie is broken up with in The Wedding Singer, he has a very normal reaction to his fiance of, what is it, eight years or whatever, breaking up with him, leaving him at the altar. 
the very normal reaction is to be very extremely sad. Yes. And depressed. The reaction to everyone around him is immediately he's going to go to a mental uh, he's going to go to a mental institution. Mm-hmm. A complete overreaction for what his normal feelings are going through. Now, if he had reacted in a violent outburst, would it have been the same? I don't think so. And I think that was commentary on how society does treat male sadness. I think it's also um, very specific of how that East Coast, um, East Coast America has dealings with uh, basically violent outbursts. Um, in most movies, you see that center around, I guess, New York and Boston and stuff. Um, violence isn't really frowned upon to male youths. It's kind of an expected, normalized thing, um, mm-hmm. which probably isn't healthy. But at the same time, like it's it's there for a reason. Um, it's it's a truth of the area. I I can't speak to if it's a truth of every area, but it definitely was true of my childhood, and I really connect with when east coast films have this aspect of violence around the youth yeah and it's not the first time that violence has been used in an adam sandler movie um and that that really reminds me of the movie that i earth not the movie in fact quite the opposite the book that i think this movie is most like and that's catcher in the rye Mm -hmm. And in Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield is a young man. He's 16. He's from New York City. And he also has hard, a really hard time expressing his emotions. Everything in his head is so, like, jam-packed. The style of narration is stream of consciousness. He has this very deep sadness in him from trauma from his brother dying and him not being able to express himself in a way where society and his family would have looked at him normally. Mm-hmm. Um, when his brother dies, he goes out to his garage and smashes all of the windows in the garage with his fists. So it's this breaking glass, which is also what happens in Prunch Drunk Love. And they send him to the hospital. And it's implied that he's both going to the hospital because he's like he basically broke his hand on all his glass, but also that he went to a mental institution for a while because he ends up missing his brother's funeral. Yeah. So he's never, he never gets to, he never gets a chance to grieve. He never gets a chance to express his sadness. Um, when, when he is confronted by his roommate, Stradlater, his, he goes from, it seems like he goes from zero to a hundred instantly and starts fighting Stradlater over, Jane and over his essay that he wrote for Stradlater. But really on the inside, since we get to see his inner monologue, we see that he, you know, I mean, he's suffering, you know, mm-hmm. he never admits it to himself, but he's, he's suffering and he does cry in this book, but he always says like, Oh, I kind of cried. He never like outwardly says it. Um, and he's crying even in the scene where he, he gets basically beat up by his roommate. I mean, there's, there are a lot of parallels there, obviously, mm-hmm. There are parallels with the sex worker. Yes. Uh, in the book, he called Holden calls up a sex worker, a prostitute named Sunny, and he only wants to sit and talk to her. He doesn't actually want to have sex with her. Very similar to what happens in, in Punch Drunk Love. And, of course, Holden has his signature red hunting cap. He has the signature piece of clothing that he wears that makes him stand out but also makes him feel comfortable 
and Barry Egan has his blue suit in the same manner. Yeah. So there, there are a lot of parallels. I could go on and on. And I'm not the only person who said this before. This is something that other people have pointed out. Yeah, I, I think um, most of the reason I think there is parallels is because it is trying to get at the same basic idea. Um, mm-hmm. And even I'd point out that uh, Holden Caulfield's older brother writes for Hollywood, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think you can really, when having a film talking about this sort of thing, get too far away from that basic idea that a lot of the stuff from here comes from how society lets men express their emotions. Um, I think that turns a lot into why we find certain Adam Sandler movies funny and why he plays these characters that act uninterested in the world, angry, mm-hmm. and technically supermen. You know? mm-hmm. all, all of his characters are supermen. They... Yeah, that's true. Either, they're either super strong or extremely skilled in a manner that you might not expect at first, but they don't look any different <laughs> than, you know, the average person. I will say, except for Billy Madison, <laughs> his superpower is being smart. <laughs> uh, he's Batman. His superpower is being extremely rich. So, oh my gosh. So he can do whatever he wants. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, I, I talk a lot about superheroes because I find it very interesting what superheroes tell us about normal people basically and it's not a lens that works for everyone but it's the closest thing i have to like a feminist lens is how's this <laughs> relate to superheroes and i mean it sounds silly but like most of my morals come from understanding what people do with power and not liking those stories so i think I don't know. that's really telling it's really telling of movies like this because superheroes are designed to show young men how to use power, how to wield power. Mm-hmm. And they're for women too, of course, especially now, but we can't deny that they were originally written for boys and young men. Yeah. Um, men in society do wield an enormous amount of power societally and also physically, of course, but s- superheroes give boys someone to look up to and like a model to express that behavior now unfortunately that can become very problematic but i mean you i don't think that you would be it wouldn't be hard for you to find men who say that like some of their inspirations are superheroes i think it would be much harder for you to find a woman who would say that yeah um and not that i don't admire like wonder woman but i wonder woman was not like my idol growing up yeah i also <laughs> think it's telling that wonder woman um, whom is probably the most famous female superhero, is a, like a Greek myth, basically, and mm-hmm. not really part of society ever. Um, yeah. I mean, whereas Superman literally comes from another planet, but gets to be from Kansas, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think that's a, a <laughs> something for another day. Um, yeah. But the way that this movie is filmed really does show us that it is supposed to be about this anxiety. Mm-hmm. The framing, a lot of the frames where we see Barry um, are wide shots, so he looks very small. Um, and at the same time, the noise and, and the soundtrack is going on to make it, to even overpower the dialogue. So it, it makes things feel very enclosed and chaotic, while at the same time, 
the wide frames being almost empty. Um, there are a lot of shots where Barry is running down a long hall. And I think what they did with these scenes is that they they filmed it in a way where the physical distance doesn't match the distance that Barry is actually covering. They make it seem like Barry is running for longer than the actual physical distance of the hallway. Mm-hmm. Again, making it feel like this impossible to overcome situation or like feeling longer or more arduous of a task. I'm thinking specifically when he... Um, tries to find Lena's hotel room or Lena's apartment. Yes. It, they linger on those scenes. Um, the scene, like the first scene when we see Barry, he's sitting in kind of a dark, he's sitting in, in the dark in his workplace. The wall is the same color as his suit that he's wearing. So he blends into the background. Plus he's relegated to a tiny corner. I think that the opening shot is so perfect because like the way the lines are on the wall point down to Barry and he's just shoved into a corner. And there are other scenes where Barry literally stands in a corner to avoid conflict. Like just everything, the way that it's filmed, the way the soundtrack goes and the way that the, the dialogue repeats itself often and has non sequiturs, it all leads to that feeling of anxiety. The scene, the long shots with the scene when um, he's talking to the sex line operator, he's pacing, he gets up and moves throughout his apartment. It's all one long uh, shot. And he like sits down in his chair. He goes up into the kitchen, he paces and he like repeats that action so many times. It's unnerving. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to feel that way. The long scenes feel too long and the truncated dialogue feels too short. It's, I think it's perfectly crafted to give you that feeling of anxiety. Yeah, and I think um, what I want to talk about is uh, when they, they kind of reverse that towards the end when he starts mm-hmm. feeling comfortable with Lena. Yes. He, he no longer gets lost going to his, her apartment. And when he gets there, even the same hallway scenes, he, he does it fast. Um, mm-hmm. It's quick without much issue. Um, and he's also bringing the harmonium to her, um, mm-hmm. which is symbolic, and she lets him keep it. But yeah, he uh, he has these scenes of confidence where he's traveling. The music's with him, um, even when he's fighting. Um, the music starts working with him instead of against him. Um, the mm-hmm. kind of war drums music there is in rhythm with what he's doing. Um, And also, um, an aspect I found interesting is, did you happen to notice Luis Guzman's dress after um, the time he wears a suit and just says he likes it? He wears a suit in one scene and then he stops. Yes. Guzman tries it out, basically. He tries to be like him. Um, And Guzman also, in this movie, when Barry goes off to Hawaii, he's happy for him and supports him. And while mm-hmm. they don't talk about it much, I think it's like a good symbol to show this person who, unfortunately, I, I think it's either his business partner or works for him, is his only male friendship, mm-hmm. um, but is generally a positive like influence on him and is trying, like wants to see him do his best. Um, yeah, because everyone else seems to be on his sister's side, the source of his familial anxiety. And I think it's worth saying that he's the only son in this family of seven sisters 
which again kind of points to this masculinity. He has all these like these these women looking at him and expecting a certain method of behavior. Yeah, and even the brothers-in-law that he talks to at the party are like so there's three guys who look like exactly the same. They're what I would picture when you say brother-in-law. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And then there's this guy who's a dentist who seems to be his confidant um, and he asks him for help and then the guy just kind of spills everything he asked him for and like tells his sister like yeah he has a crying problem and he was looking for a uh, therapist um, Mm -hmm. which is one of the scenes where that when the sister says that it makes me so angry that that oh I know that makes in front of Lena yeah that makes me tear up a little bit Um, I, I didn't mark that one down but I remember specifically the first time I watched that movie, I was so shocked by that that I was like almost like angry teared. Um, yeah, and that that scene is so chaotic too. Yeah. Um, but the the two scenes I like had my eyes well bet are the the scene at the party where they're just ribbing him so much because like honestly, it makes me feel like when I didn't have as much uh, ability to control my like emotional outbursts, that's how it feels to be like made fun of from all sides and you don't know how to like get out and you're forced to go to this thing that like sucks for you but on the other mm-hmm. side of that is when the music starts playing um there's diagenic m- music when they get together at the end like the stress is so palatably removed yeah. with him and Lena together that it mm-hmm. also makes me like kind of well up just a bit oh yeah it's it's such an like a physical reaction almost when that music finally calms down. And then when the music stops, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, it feels good yeah. because you've been so, you don't realize you've been so tense that entire time. Yeah. And then they have such a good cinematic scene where when they embrace all these people are quickly going by them to show the like time go by and that you can stay here for a second and not be worried about what's going to happen. And See, that was the scene that I wanted to talk about, and I had a slightly different read of it. Oh. Um, this, because, you know, the, the thing that was on in my mind the most when I was watching this was, was Catching the Rye. And that whole movie is about how Holden can feel so lonely when there's so many people around him. This is kind of the opposite of that. He... He kisses Lena in this scene. We only see their, we see them and then silhouettes of people are like suddenly flood behind them showing that like he doesn't feel alone now. Yeah. The, the scene is so full of people now. And and then like I just thought that scene was really well done. But I also think you're not you're not wrong about your reading of it. I mean, I think one thing that's important to say about this movie, unlike most other movies where um that we've talked about where we're like here's a few ways you could see this and xyz i think there's five ways that this movie is intended to be read um it is without a doubt like a, a master crafted film and uh we didn't even get into like the color symbolism of it or what pudding means and and um how travel equals love in this movie i would say you know, that's yeah it does even so the i, I actually that is something worth talking about the idea that they constantly equate traveling to mean love. Um, asking if you've ever well, been to Hawaii or if you've ever been on a plane um, where Barry hasn't and Lena has. And then the beginning of the movie, which is a car crash, um, mm-hmm. which may or may not have happened. Yeah, it's very unclear. Um, 
and the fact that was this car cl- crash the fact that the day starting for um barry and this is how his social anxiety represents it in the film of now we have to deal with things or is it this idea that in 15 seconds a woman is going to drive up who is his love interest and now he's going to have to learn to travel when he's afraid of it because the only love he's ever known is his family that treats him like absolute shit i think that the car crash representing like the start of his day and being like this anxiety is a very confusing scene i think that's very accurate in the beginning he is very hesitant to leave his workplace mm-hmm. i mean your work your workplace kind of represents this place where you aren't a member of your family like because you have your family time your home time and your work time usually and i think for barry like that's a very good solitary time for him and then it's constantly invaded by his sisters yes um but I, I love the idea of travel it being equated to love because love is this sort of crossing places, this 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 transness of, of going across and being in something new. Mm-hmm. Um I, I I I love that. And it's the idea of almost a culture shock. Yeah. Which I think is represented in the scene when he goes to Hawaii, there's a cultural parade going on behind him. Yeah. But he, he actually, it doesn't, he likes it is the thing. Yeah, he does. Once he, once he, he breaks out of his comfort zone, he does enjoy it. Yeah. um, And also it should be noted, uh, when Lena's in the hospital, he travels to Utah in order to wrap up the, the bad guy in it and deal with that travels back Mm -hmm. um which was not what she needed um and it's interesting to see that because she says like i i needed you at the hospital i needed to wake up and see you there i didn't need you to go fight this enemy i don't know um which is a very interesting take on Mm -hmm. how i think masculinity in relationships work and also the idea of you know what superheroes do to their loved ones but we don't need to talk about that more um there's one more thing i wanted to talk about And it's the phones. Oh, yes. In the beginning, the phones are just the sister constantly. and Sisters, plural. And they're so... You can't really tell them apart. Mm. They all sound the same. Constantly invading his space, asking him questions, um, constantly ringing. But the phone is also used in the phone sex line. And the phone is what tells... It's what connects him and Lena... I don't really know, because I haven't had a lot of time to digest this movie. We only watched it, like, yesterday morning. Within the 24 <laughs> like hours, early, yeah. Within 24 hours. Um, I, I love the idea of this phone communication being kind of distant, yet at the same time being very invasive. Yes. And that's the same thing. Again, I'm going to come back to Catching the Rye. Holden Caulfield calls a lot of people on the phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and I, I don't know. What do you think about that? So I, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the theme of his social anxiety and stuff is this jarring ringing. And then someone gets to ask him a question and he he's not ever. I mean, he picks up the phone. He feels the need to, but he doesn't mm-hmm. really like consent to having a conversation with these people. They can interrupt him at any time. 
and they purposely call him at work because he can't not answer the phone there. Yeah. They don't call him at home. They're doing it because they know they get to talk to him right there. Um, and I think it's just kind of, they're being abusive is what it's supposed to show. But it's also, I mean, I don't think I have to tell any millennial or, you know, lower generation the anxiety of picking up a phone. Oh, yeah. It sucks. I hate it. Um, I'm pretty good at it now, but you should have seen me 12 years ago. Barely able to do it. Um, yeah, I used to not be able to order a pizza. I'd have to psych myself up. Yeah, I remember spending an hour because my cell phone that I texted on, I bought a card and it had a number scratched off so I couldn't read it. And I had to like put more minutes on it. And it took me an Ugh. hour to call customer service because I was worried about like what I would have to say to do it. Yeah. But- um, there is that scene when he calls the sex line. And he's expecting to get connected to a woman right away. Mm-hmm. But what happens is she says, we're a callback service. Oh, yeah. And he gets like, uh, he, he doesn't want to do it. And he gets nervous. and He doesn't really like that. You know, the first person that he actually calls? No. Well, actually, he does call the sex line and ask to speak to the manager, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. But he calls Lena in the payphone. From the, like before that, I think most of the calls are... Yeah, I mean, he does Made call the sex him. line, though. Oh, I guess that's true, but then it's still a callback. They turn it around on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not in control for most of it. Um, and in fact, mm-hmm. he's not in control of him and Lena's relationship. Um, she mm-hmm. actually reveals that she seeked him out after seeing his picture and wanted to meet him. Um, yeah. But it's not, like, bad. Um, in fact, like we mentioned before, she calls down to a phone operator at the bottom of her apartment who tells him stuff and hands him the phone. Mm-hmm. It shows that he's kind of always on the receiving end of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's obviously worried about it and he's unsure of himself. And in the end, well, he... they use that same thing to bring him happiness, which is just an interesting switch of what was happening beforehand. He takes the phone with him to Utah. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. He, when he gets angry for the final thing, for the final like showdown where he calls him and he's angry, he rips his phone out and carries it all the way to Utah to deal with it, carrying with him his like means of communication. Yeah, he is, he is going to be heard in that scene. Yes, he refuses. That is what he wants. Yeah, he refuses to take any more calls. He wants to speak. He does it, and then that's it. And it's actually yeah, interesting it's- his conversations with Philip Seymour Hoffman where we see it from his point of view is is Barry saying stuff that's like like hey fuck you and then Philip Seymour Hoffman is screaming at him like you're telling me to fuck myself I'll fucking kill you you're fucking dead like stuff like that yeah um and it shows now just just more with how communication works basically yeah uh i guess the idea of being heard i think is very prominent in this movie cuz i mean we're hearing the soundtrack He's hearing everybody talk to him. He's not answering questions. I mean, he's not allowing his emotions to be heard until the end when he does. Yeah. And that's, again, a theme in The Catcher in the Rye is how when you're heard, you're able to express your emotions. And that's a good thing. Yeah. And there's even this bit of uh, the harmonium that's brought to him is broken and he's slowly trying to fix it. And then he wants to kind of learn how to play, but he's... Not so mm-hmm. sure if he will. Um, and it's very much his ability to express himself. And that yeah. thematic element of the movie is the fact that he doesn't know how exactly. Um, yeah. 
Well, this movie is just very good, and I would recommend anyone watch it, and I'll probably watch it again, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I, I just have to point out again, this is written for Adam Sandler. That's why I gave it a one-plus star. And I think it's written to be an Adam Sandler movie. It's his take on on these movies, and I think it's done yeah. extremely well. Me too. And if there's something that makes me think at this moment we're not wasting our time looking at the artistic merit of these movies, it's the fact that uh, PTA did it too. Yeah, and this he does it so well, and he hits on so many of the points that we've been talking about. I finally feel redeemed in talking about queerness and masculinity. I think the one thing that I I think that he added a little bit too much into was this, I hate this term, but this toxic femininity. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there are elements of that. And don't get me wrong, I think that women women can be toxic. I just don't think that that's a systemic problem. Yeah. Um, And at the same time, the person who's kind of in charge, like with the antagonist, is a man. Yeah. And the one who's... So there's stuff to be explored there, but I, I'm not going to explore it right now in this episode. <laughs> I mean, they do a, a decent job, I think, of the fact that Philip Seymour Hoffman is orchestrating it and sends men after him to do violence and such. Yeah. Um, but again, we could do a whole nother episode on this one. And mm-hmm. there's so much there, basically. But yeah. instead, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to watch another movie tomorrow. We're going to watch Mr. Deeds. Oh. Have you seen Mr. Deeds? <laughs> I I might have. Well, Mr. Deeds. No. Okay, go ahead. Mr. Deeds is the one where he inherits some money. <laughs> some money. A ton of money. He <laughs> inherits a controlling stake in a media conglomerate. Um, it is a retelling of the film Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Um, it's a Happy Madison production. It's written in part by Tim Hurley. Uh, Adam Sandler stars in it. Um, so I think I'm giving it two stars, right? That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, if it was written in part, since it's a remake, I don't think it gets the full three stars. No. But two stars. Yeah. I, I'm excited. I'm glad that we're back in the Adam Sandler zone. Yeah. At least for even one moment. Yeah. Just for the moment. And, and Punch Drunk, Punch Drunk Love was a system shock. Yes. Um, would you say it was the best movie we've seen so far? Oh, yeah. yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt, it was the best movie. I mean, just... Yeah. I figured. Um, I'll point out that it's going to take about three more good movies for uh, from like a dramatic point until people stop realizing that Adam Sandler making dramatic movies isn't a fluke. Um, and in fact, I'd say some people still haven't gotten that message. Yeah. <laughs> Like I said before, I love Adam Sandler dramatic movies, and <laughs> he just does really well. He's 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 good at what he does. Yeah, it's it's great. Well, uh, you can find our podcast at Laugh at Him Pod on Twitter, and you can also find our games at wannabegames.com. Um, we make TTRPGs, which stands for tabletop role playing game, <laughs> which you might not know if you are just here because of Adam Sandler. Um, you can also find us and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash wannabegames. You can oh. find me on Twitter at kittyrusade. And you can find me at, at Joska. And here, should I play some discordant music for something you say, basically, without being able to be heard to keep it thematic? Yeah. I mean, I could always play our theme song backwards. Ooh, that's quite discordant. <laughs>
Yeah. Please take my wife. Isn't it take my wife, please? You know. Alright, I always get it wrong. I, I mix it up every time. Yeah, whatever. 